This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances in childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 99, recorded on July 22nd, 2022. I'm your co-host, Brenda Weigel from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm here along with my co-host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with the Ohio State University. Hi, Tim. Hey, Brenda. We are thrilled today on This Week in Pediatric Oncology to be joined by Dr. Sam Volchenblum. He is one of the world's leading experts in informatics and pediatric oncology and really paving the way in this transformative field. Dr. Volchenblum began his career with a bachelor's in science from University of Illinois. He then went on to a combined MD-PhD program at Mayo Medical School in Rochester, Minnesota, just south of me, followed by a residency in pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Then he went on to Boston Children's Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Center for a fellowship in pediatric hematology oncology that he completed in 2004. Importantly, in setting the stage for his incredible career, Dr. Volchenboom stayed in Boston as an instructor to complete a master's degree in biomedical informatics and a research fellowship in informatics. He then joined the faculty at the University of Chicago, where he is currently an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and the Associate Chief Research Informatics Officer for the Division of Biological Sciences. He is the Dean of the Master's Programs and designed and launched the University of Chicago's Master's in Bioinformatics Program. He is a practicing uh, pediatric oncologist and his research interests all involve the use of bioinformatics in pediatric oncology. He is the director of the informatics core for the clinical and translational sciences award at the University of Chicago and director of the University of Chicago's clinical informatics fellowship program. It is with this that Dr. Volchenboom launched a international effort in pediatric oncology bioinformatics and formed the University of Chicago's pediatric cancer data commons. Today, we look forward to an update from Dr. Volchenblum about the Pediatric Data Commons and the Gearbox Initiative. Welcome, Dr. Volchenblum. It is a real pleasure. This is such an important and and transformative effort for the pediatric oncology community. And I wonder if you can start by sharing just an overview for our audience of what is the Pediatric Cancer Data Commons and why is it so important? Yeah, thanks, Brenda. That's a beautiful introduction. I appreciate that very much. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear um, the succession of of of, t- of time that I've spent uh, working up to this uh, because I, I rarely think of it in those terms. I sort of always always had this interest in in data and and cancer. And what really got me interested about this particular initiative is 
realizing all the inefficiencies we have with the way that we collect and use data. And uh, when I was first exposed to clinical trials and seeing how everything is done in Microsoft Word and, and we pass PDFs of protocols around and uh, how we have to generate order sets manually, it really made me uh, want to seek out and understand the entire clinical trials pipeline. And what was clear to me from the start was that what we lack in the medical community is, is an appreciation of the importance of data standards. And uh, uh, I know you didn't ask me for a lecture on data standards, but I'm compelled to say something about them. Uh, and if you uh, think about it, um, you know, 20 years ago, if you went to an ATM uh, in another country, you had to have the right bank and the right card and, you know, and it was all very specific. And now you can go to some ATM in top of Mount Everest and it'll work. Uh, because banks figured out a long time ago how to do this. And yet, if you want to bring a CT scan from the hospital across the street to your hospital here, it often involves a CD-ROM and, uh, and a bunch of files that nobody knows how to interoperate. So the medical community really needs to embrace standards. And that's what got us to think about um, building um, standards for pediatric cancer, which forms the foundation of the Pediatric Cancer Data Commons. The Pediatric Cancer Data Commons is the world's largest collection of data on pediatric cancer, and it is built to provide a platform for researchers to have easy access to pediatric cancer data. And as you well know, the success of pediatric cancer is predicated on the fact that we've been able to bring together data from all over the, all over the world, essentially, uh, because it's so rare. But the problem is that if you try to combine data from the children's oncology group and you try to add that to data from one of the European consortia or one of the Japanese consortia, it doesn't work because people collect data in different ways. So what the PCDC, what the Pediatric Cancer Data Commons does is we get big groups together from all over the world and we put them in a room both physically and now virtually and say, you have to agree on a standard for data. And then we harmonize all that data into that standard, and then we make that data available in a data sharing interface. And that process now we've found is repeatable, and we've done it over 10 different pediatric cancers, and we have data sharing agreements with groups all over the world. And uh, now we're able to take data from any place in the world, get it harmonized into a standard, and make it available for researchers. And we've already seen incredible output from the commons in terms of the kinds of projects and papers that are being written. And we feel this is a very important repeatable process, which should have effects across the entire care and clinical trials pipeline. So I'm happy to talk about any aspects of that, but I think what we're doing is foundational work that is important for any area of medicine, not just cancer, not just pediatric oncology. Sam, this is a fantastic um, uh, resource, it sounds like. Wh who's, who's paying for it? Simple question. Yeah, usually that usually you wait for that question till the end, but I'll answer right up front. Um, we've been we've been really fortunate to have foundation funding be a major uh, supporter for getting these commons off the ground. So um, St. Baldrick's Foundation, the Rally Foundation, and Leukemia and Lymphoma Society are are the three largest foundational funders that we've had, uh, and and so they've poured millions of dollars into the building of these commons. Um, but we know that that's not a model for sustainability. And so going forward, we know that to keep the commons running, we'll need to be able to pay for people to update the outcomes in the commons, to add data, to fulfill data requests. And so I think sustainability models are gonna include some element of continued foundation funding, but also funding from groups like the NCI, perhaps groups like the Children's Oncology Group and other cooperative groups, as well as potentially researchers themselves and potentially even pharmaceutical companies. So I, I think that the major investment upfront is gonna to lead to a much 
um, more sustainable path down the road, but we're always going to need to be thinking about funding. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up right at the top. Sam, you mentioned um, sort of the international scope, and I think that's one of the real major advantages, especially in rare diseases um, and and cancer as a whole, as we kind of get into smaller and smaller populations is becoming kind of, by definition, a whole collection of rare diseases, and especially pediatric cancer. Are there particular challenges with regards to those international collaborations that you've had to overcome? Um, and, and are there barriers or opportunities that are still left to, to overcome to enhance that international collaboration? Yeah, I, you know, I can't tell you the number of times when we've started working on a disease project and somebody says, oh, that group will never work with you or, or these two groups don't get to, they don't get along and they'll never work together. And every single time we have been able to create international collaboration through just good old fashioned, you know, trust and sharing and assuring groups that we're here to try to build something together. Um, so we initially had some challenges over people being suspicious about how data are going to be used and how, what it would be, um, who would have control over the data. But we've, we've spent an enormous amount of time on the governance processes so that each group has confidence that their data are only going to be used according to their specifications. So if you want data from the neuroblastoma commons, you have to request it and the neuroblastoma executive committee will approve that request. So once we had those trust issues worked out, uh, both informally through conversations and then formally through uh, sharing agreements, uh, it was much easier than to work on the data dictionaries and, and getting data um, harmonized and put into the commons. Now, we, of course, want to comply with all the HIPAA and GDPR and any other requirements that are uh, necessary for sharing data. So we have a full-time governance person that makes sure that we're adhering to any obligations that we have that are both local, regional, national, and international. So we can take data from all over the world. And we've never had an instance yet where um, we couldn't get past a legal issue or a contractual issue. We've been able to work through through everything at, at this point. Um, we we do have some challenges with working with lower and middle income countries, which we could talk about if you want. And we're trying to expand out. Like we had a call with folks from Ghana this morning about potentially helping them with data collection, helping them with educational materials. And there, I think we're seeing more and more challenges that are related to funding and trying to understand how to get money for some of these initiatives. Um, but but most of these the, the the standard challenges you would think of. Uh, around data sharing and um, and GDPR and those things we've been able to work through. I mean, it sounds like so many challenges, but it sounds like you've been successful in a lot of ways. So thank you for taking these, what I would have thought to be insurmountable problems across countries and data sharing uh, to, and, and get to be successful with it. I'm, I'm curious about the data input. So if you, into your comments, like if you wanted to get data out of our center, you know, is it going to require someone here transferring information or are you able to mine with bots, you know, our Epic or our EMR? How does that work? It's a great question. So most of the data we have thus far, we took a, I think, an easier route to get things jump started, And that was getting data from completed clinical trials. So in that, in that case, we were working in the U.S. with Children's Oncology Group. Um, and in Europe, we were working with... Um, cooperative group, groups like, like PSYOP and EPSSG, but we still had to work with individual institutions to create data sharing agreements. But in every case, it was clinical trials data collected through case report forms. So ultimately data, data were manually curated. 
Now, for the last uh, year, year and a half, we've been working on projects to, to leverage registry and EHR data more directly. And obviously, the future of building these commons is not going to be relying on manually input, manually abstracted data that a, a CRA has to pull out, but actually getting data straight from the electronic health record. So as part of the Children's Cancer Data Initiative and other work that we're doing, we're developing uh, tools and methods to extract data directly from electronic health records. Now, this is a huge challenge because every hospital's implementation of their own system uh, has a lot of unique features that make a blanket solution impossible. So there are emerging tools that will make this easier, but in the end, you still have to rely on the hospital's IT groups to, um, to implement many of these solutions. But we feel that um, we've seen now over the past few years that the technology barriers are starting to go away. But to, Tim, to answer your question specifically, we wouldn't, we would hope not to have to work directly with your group to get data unless it was very specific to your institution, um, in which case then we could work to get data extracted from your own EHR. Uh, a good example of that is say working with St. Jude. Now we're getting clinical data from St. Jude that are not part of the uh, children's oncology group um, because they run their own clinical trials. And so in that case, we're working directly with St. Jude to do uh, EHR data extraction from their data warehouse to pull into our data commons. All of this is to say is that there's not a single solution, I wish there were, but that there's an emerging set of solutions that I think will cover all the use cases. Each one is gonna have its own technical and regulatory challenges, but again, we're working through those. And are you able to provide funding to these different sites or IT groups or people and so forth? Cause it all sounds like a lot of work still. You know how to ask all the right questions. So uh, that, that is an ongoing issue. And I'll say we have uh, two um, areas where there are, are definite funding challenges related to what you just mentioned. One is uh, funding groups to do manual data extraction. And that uh, is something we write into our grants. It's something that St. Baldrick's is helping cover with their big consortium grant that we have. Um, the second challenge is the harmonization challenge. So if we have a set of uh, data standards, I started the conversation by saying that people traditionally don't follow standards. And now you have a set of data at institutions that need to be harmonized into the new standard. Uh, uh, and so you have to generally pay a statistician to do that work. So we can do some of that locally in our group, uh, but we uh, often have to help uh, institutions overcome the local challenge of how do you fund these positions. And it's not, as you can imagine, it's not often just a matter of money. It's a matter of, of people's time and effort. So you could say we can help pay for someone to do this, but that means they have to hire and train somebody and supervise somebody. So this is actually our biggest bottleneck is the harmonization of the data. And it's not just a financial challenge, it's a person, people challenge. Uh, but again, we're writing this funding into our grants and we know that it's an important aspect of this and it could never be successful unless we think about ways to fund these local efforts. And Sam, building on that, you, you mentioned sort of the majority of the funding support has come from philanthropic organizations supporting pediatric cancer uh, research. And in that, um, those organizations are made up of, of advocates for childhood cancer. How is that advocate voice integrated in the, the as far as sort of protection of data, the, the importance of these initiatives and, and concerns of the, the patient and family cancer community built into the pediatric data commons and how are advocates continually engaged and how could they better champion this incredibly important effort? Great question. Um, and we've been very interested in uh, patient and family advocates from the very start. 
Uh, last year, we launched a scientific advisory committee, which includes uh, stakeholders in the pediatric cancer community, and it includes some patient and family advocates. Uh, and then we also launched an external advisory board, which also uh, in includes advocates that are not part of the pediatric oncology community um, necessarily. So we're trying to put together groups that include patient and family advocates, and we welcome uh, we, we're now inviting um, advocates to our meetings, uh, to our, our seminars and our in-person meetings. Um, and, and every time we have a big national or international meeting, we invite family advocates to those meetings as well. Uh, one of the big initiatives I'm excited about is how are we going to approach families for patient-reported outcomes and family-entered data, which I think is a great new frontier. And so to do that, we're trying to work with families and uh, work with, it's, as you know, it's often very invested parents and uh, in working with these groups to understand better ways to collect and leverage data. Because I think uh, our data commons will not be complete unless we're tracking patients through time. And to do that, we're really going to need to leverage the information that patients and families can provide. So we welcome input at every step of the way. So um, moving on from sort of all the logistics of how you set it up and what the, what the different parameters are, can you tell us some of the big questions you hope to be able to answer or some of the projects that people already are answering by using the data? What, what, let's, what is the use of it going to be like? Yeah, and so you know the the early uses have been rather obvious. It's uh, you know like coming up with better risk stratification schemes, better pretreatment stratification uh, for patients based on larger and larger collections of data, because then that allows you to have more and more rare subtypes to stratify when you do your decision trees. So if you look at the initial set of papers, say from neuroblastoma, or from rhabdomyosarcoma, or germ cell tumor, they're all concentrating on um, trying to come up with uh, trying to leverage these larger and larger data sets to have more rare subtypes to study for those, for those things. But we're starting to see now the emergence of more, um, I think more innovative kinds of studies. Uh, like for instance, we had a study where um, a group looked at uh, diagnostic MIBG scans and outcomes and tried to see, could you take the set of diagnostic scans, do machine learning on those scans, and then use that to predict outcomes. That's an example of where they took images and took our clinical data and had good outcome data from us and were able to, to do the study. The, what I'm particularly interested in are the cross-disease studies that people have never been able to do. Uh, because as you know, a lot of these groups work in silos. And so if you're studying germ cell tumor, you're working on germ cell tumor data, if you're studying rabbit or you're working on rhabdo data, but the commons is actually a place where you should be able to come in and say, show me all the patients that have an ALK mutation across all of our cancers and show me their outcomes or show me all the patients that had uh, cardiotoxicity and, and I want to get that entire group over all solid tumors, for instance, or over all cancers. So I think that's the, that's the next frontier for, as far as I'm concerned, is creating a single front door for a researcher to come in and be able to ask cross-disease questions um, and then link their link the clinical data to other data sets. I mean, that's the other piece we haven't discussed is all of our clinical data can be rather easily linked to existing genomic data or biospecimen data. Um, in fact, uh, Tim at Nationwide, we have a connection to the to the biospecimen repository there. Uh, and so you can do a search over patients in our commons and it will tell you which patients have frozen samples in the biospecimen repository because we can link those two together. So all sorts of cool studies are, are being spun up. And I think um, our job as uh, oncologists and researchers is to train this, train the you know, young investigators, especially to use the data commons to be able to ask these questions. And Sam, building on that use case, do you envision the 
data commons to be able to inform and um, have access to uh, commercial entities, pharma, uh, in addition to the academic community. Do you see that as um, an extended use um, and and the potential uh, opportunities there? Yeah. So I think this is this is an incredibly important and yet untapped area, and I think it's it's untapped for good reason. I think there is a, a, a I think there is a, a natural reticence or a, a people want to be careful about how we think about pharma and 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 our data um we we know that there as we collect more and more data especially real world data you know data out of the ehr that's not part of clinical trials that this is going to become more and more interesting for pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies to use for you know synthetic controls um to generate real world evidence and so i do think there is a place here for um for allowing uh pharma companies to leverage the data commons i think it has to be done with extreme care and with um with very transparent governance uh and uh, it's something that needs to be uh discussed with each executive committee with our with our scientific advisory committee and external advisory board and i think if we do all those steps correctly there'll be a place for pharmaceutical companies to start to leverage the data we have to at least for synthetic controls, if not for other types of research. It could be a source of funding. I keep going back to funding, but I guess that's my role here is to think about money. So uh, yeah. well, if, if industry gets involved, this would be very, very valuable to them, I would think. Uh, and, and, and and of course, we know that. And uh, again, we it's it's something we've never broached yet with our with our groups because we know it's going to be a source of um, a, a lot of careful discussion. We're not quite ready yet, but I know I'm with you, Tim. I believe that in the future, it's going to be something that we need to bring up and that we need to discuss. And I think, Sam, as you said, I think as the clinical trial landscape uh, it, it evolves, and not just in pediatric oncology, but across the board and how we do trials and how we decentralize trials and how we use some of these synthetic controls, data sets like this are going to be pivotal in in how we move forward in certain uh across the board. So I I agree with you. I think there's real opportunity there, but great care, uh great care will need to be taken for sure. One of one of the uh themes we've seen with COVID is that there's just there aren't enough people around to do any jobs. And bioinformaticists are extremely rare. And what kind of words of advice do you have for trainees or how can you encourage people to go into uh, the field? Yeah. What would you advise? We need more people. Yeah, so I, I was just on a panel discussing this exact issue. So it is very difficult to find well-trained data scientists, as you know. Um, I run our I run our master's program here in biomedical informatics, and so we're trying to train this next generation of data scientists who understand medicine, biology, and uh, data science. Um, and so it's a really rich field, and I would encourage anybody who's interested in data science to think about healthcare data science. Most colleges now have data, some sort of data science undergraduate major, uh, and there's a number of ways to get them to get master's training in healthcare data science um, to, to, to really um, to help somebody launch a career. Especially for medical students now, we're trying to provide unique ways for medical students and residents to get specialized training in healthcare informatics because that's a very rare bird is somebody who is a physician um, uh, who also understands how to do machine learning or understands how databases are designed. And so that kind of workforce, I think, is going to be very important to train. Um, on the other end, 
is how do you hire and find these people? Um, and it's very difficult. You're competing with uh, Google and Facebook and uh, McKinsey and Accenture. And so it's very difficult to find data scientists, um, especially senior level data scientists who want to take on this type of work. Um, and the advice that I always have is you have to convince your institution what the you know, what the market is and you have to, and, and we're not used to doing this in academics, but you can't hire a senior data scientist if you're only going to offer them 50% of what they could make down the street if they go to work for, um, you know, if they go to work for Facebook. So uh, I, I, we've been very fortunate in being able to find data scientists, but it, uh, it, uh, it comes at a cost. And I'm sure both of you have seen this in your own work, that it's really hard to find the right people who want to dedicate themselves to this work. So we feel very lucky in that way. Yeah, we've we've experienced that challenge. We've had to compete and raise, give you know, salary adjustments and try to retain people and still lose them. And yeah, it's it's very difficult just because, like you say, a competitive world. And uh, but hopefully we can if people like you keep training them and 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 talking about it. Then hopefully that will get better. So I appreciate that. We need to wrap it up here, but. Um, I guess I was going to give you the opportunity to broaden your advice or your your uh, career experience, pontificate a little bit, maybe. But junior, you know, we just had our new fellows start in the, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, if they're listening to this and you're reflecting back on, I mean, you found a very nice niche that was needed. Um, you know, uh, how did that come about? What what advice do you have for for these junior folks? Yeah. I, I... I mean, we all take these serendipitous routes to get where we are. And I was certainly lucky in my career to have the opportunity to run a large informatics center locally at our institution, which is where I learned a lot about managing and budgets and, you know, having, it's where I learned that I'm not a good manager and I needed to hire people that were good managers, which I think was important. Um, So uh, I I think, I think my advice uh, to trainees is always get as much training as you can or as early on as you can, because it's the easiest time to do it. And if you, you know, if you're a fellow, um, if you're a resident and you want further data science training, do a clinical informatics fellowship because you'll get a, you usually get a free master's degree out of that. Uh, you'll usually get a lot of informatics training that will help formalize what you do. Uh, it's very difficult once you're an established um, attending clinician to go back and to learn all the things you need to do to build these kinds of large scale informatics programs. I think I think the field of healthcare data science is extremely rich right now. And I would encourage trainees to, to, to leverage whatever kinds of um, mechanisms they can to get as much training as early on as possible. And then just hook yourself to large scale projects as soon as you can. Uh, we, in, in the Pediatric Cancer Data Commons, we take on a lot of clinician trainees everywhere from med students to fellows to, and then we have junior faculty working with us uh, just to get people exposed to the different uh, potential areas in um, in healthcare informatics. So my advice is just you know go to people like Tim and ask to pay for programs and ask to pay for your uh, educational programs and get them done when you're when you're young and uh, you have the time and energy to do it. And and finally, how do how does someone access the data commons or get trained on it or or if they wanted to do a project mining the data? Is there a website? Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, if you go to our our website, um, 
which hopefully we can have posted with the with the podcast. Uh, you know, there's plenty of information on our site about how to access data, how to access educational materials. Um, uh, anybody, of course, can contact me, and I'll help put people in, in touch with the right folks to get projects off the ground. We welcome new investigators. We have occasionally had seminars for young investigators to learn how to use the commons, and we're going to be doing more of those. Uh, and I would encourage people to just come with projects, and we'll, we'll find ways for you to get those projects off the ground to get your data requests through. Uh, we have a lot of active um, areas of research on the data commons itself. So if people are interested in how do you build better analysis tools, how do you build better data extraction tools, we're also, we also have a whole line of research that's more data commons focused and that's less about the data. So love to have people come to us and, and want to do projects and happy to help shepherd people through that process. Fantastic. Brenda, any last questions or comments? Uh, I just want to thank Sam for just a fantastic discussion and also thank you for really paving the way in a in what is really, I think, a pivotal area, as you just highlighted, for the future of, of not only pediatric oncology, but I think um, clinical uh, research and clinical efforts across um, medicine. So Sam, thank you. This, I look forward to the future. I look forward to this being a central core for so much of what we do. So thank you. Yeah, it's great. It's been great working with both of you. And I look forward to working together again and um, looking forward to uh, hopefully getting plenty of people coming to us as a result of this, uh, this chat that we had. This is wonderful. Thank you. Great. Thank you both for being here. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonc.org. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu and find all TWIPO episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.